Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled, built-for-business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro. Built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Hey folks, before we get to today's show, which I think is a great one with documentary filmmaker Brian Fogel, I want to just say a couple of things. So, you know, we, we make the show in bits and pieces. I record a Q&A, I do an interview with a guest, I say some things at the end of the show, and we wrapped all of that by late morning on Wednesday, January 6th, at which point I was in a pretty great mood because of what happened in Georgia, because of what I see is happening in the Justice Department. And then we wrapped everything, and the, the day wore on, and then we had this craziness in the Capitol, which has been very jarring, very shocking, and in some ways disgraceful. And so I just wanted to let folks know that the show you're about to listen to was completely prepared and produced before the events of Wednesday afternoon, when we saw our democracy attacked. Our Capitol building stormed, tear gas used. There was an armed standoff on the House floor. Mike Pence was taken to a secret location. Kamala Harris, too. The Capitol Police seemed overwhelmed. Members of Congress, of the U.S. Congress, were sheltering in place. This was an armed insurrection. A woman is reported this evening, Wednesday evening, was killed. And all of it, in my view, was provoked by Donald J. Trump. It was stoked by Donald J. Trump. It was incited by Donald J. Trump. I find it sickening and saddening. It's shameful and disgraceful. I really don't have enough adjectives and words to describe what happened today. What I do know is we're two weeks away from, I think, a rescue from some of what's been going on. And so I just wanted to, to note what happened today and maybe offer some prayers for the country. And though I was very disturbed and I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen over the next two weeks, I ultimately have great optimism about the country and the direction in which we're going. And I hope we all get there together. And I'll see you on the other side. Now enjoy the show. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I'd rather tell stories like this than worry about consequences or not even that. Worry about things that, that haven't happened, nor do I believe they will happen because I still believe in our democracy. I still believe that we do have safety in America. That's Brian Fogel. He's the director of The Dissident, a powerful new documentary about the killing of Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi. We discuss Fogel's journey to making the film, 
and the story of Jamal Khashoggi's final years, from exile to his eventual murder. We also talk about the difficulties Fogel has faced in distributing the dissident, and what those struggles say about Saudi Arabia's influence on American business and politics. That's coming up. Stay tuned. We've gotten multiple questions relating to some of the pardons that President Trump issued to his allies. Here are two that are related to each other. This one comes in a tweet from Twitter user Taunt That Lucy, who asks, can friends of the president who have been pardoned still be legally compelled to testify? And another from Twitter user TEK818, who asks somewhat tartly, quote, now that humanoid scum Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, that's your words, not my words, now that they have been pardoned, can they be held in contempt indefinitely if they refuse to cooperate with depositions or testifying? In prison for perjury if they lie, hashtag askpreet. Well, to answer the last bit of that first, yeah, people can be charged with perjury if they lie, if there's an ongoing investigation, and if it's in connection with a federal investigation, or for that matter, a state investigation, under various statutes, both state and federal. Now, there's some confusion over this point, and lots of people have been pointing out that as a general matter, once you've been pardoned for a particular crime, you're no longer in jeopardy, and so you don't have the right to invoke the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. And so you can be compelled to talk about what you did with respect to that conduct and what, more importantly, other people may have done, because that's why you want to question them, to find out about other people's involvement in the criminal conduct. And people do rightly point out that in certain circumstances, having been pardoned removes any risk of your going to prison. The self-protection is no longer required under the Fifth Amendment. The problem is we have multiple jurisdictions in this country and we have federalism. And so if there's any argument, it doesn't have to be that strong an argument because we take the Fifth Amendment very seriously. If there's any argument that you still might be in criminal jeopardy because of an action that could be taken by a state, in other words, by a local district attorney's office or attorney general's office, even if you've been pardoned for a federal crime, you probably still have the right to invoke the Fifth Amendment. So for example, there was a pardon for Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, for crimes that he was charged with federally. As you may know, there's the possibility of proceedings against him in New York. It's a little bit complicated what's been going on there. But if the nature of the questioning of Paul Manafort would be related to that conduct for which he is potentially still in jeopardy in New York, he would still have the right to invoke the Fifth Amendment. So the general point is correct, but it depends on the facts and circumstances and the particular person and the particular jeopardy they might face outside of the federal system. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I've loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly right out of the box. 
Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility. Gaming resources. My guest this week is Brian Fogel, the director of The Dissident. Fogel spent a year and a half making a film about Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and his brutal murder at the hands of the Saudi Arabian government. Fogel won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2018 for his film Icarus about Russian doping at the 2014 Sochi Olympics. His new film, is a chilling indictment of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his enablers. And as a heads up for listeners, there are some graphic and upsetting moments in our conversation about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. That's next. Stay tuned. Brian Fogel, welcome to the show. Good uh, to be talking to you, Preet. So first, congratulations, not only on the new film that we're going to talk about, an important film, The Dissident, but also on your Oscar win for your last film, Icarus, about doping in the Russian sports world. I think people have a general sense of what the dissident is about. And so I guess my first question is, how's, how's it doing in Saudi Arabia? Crushing at the box office there? Um, I don't think it's, uh, it's in Saudi Arabia. I think that uh, the only way the film will make it into Saudi Arabia uh, in light of not having a, uh, a global streamer um, is uh, through thumb drives uh, or some other illicit mean. Uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of Saudis on VPNs uh, finding ways to get the film. Yeah, that, that was my poor attempt at an opening joke <laughs> because we're going to be very, <laughs> we're going to be quite serious. Um, uh, we're going to be quite serious here. So can I just indulge for a moment in my reaction to the film? So y- your folks were kind enough to send a screener to me and my team so we could watch it so I could ask you intelligent questions about the film. Which opens, by the way, I should say, it is in limited release at theaters. But to, before I get into the analysis of the film and, and the discussion of it, when will people be able to watch it? 
So it will be on uh, video on-demand platforms uh, beginning January 8th. And so that means like you can go on to any place where you can rent to film, Comcast, DirecTV, uh, Apple Movies, um, Amazon, uh, Xbox, Roku, uh, et cetera. Uh, so Friday, January a, 8th, it'll be available. Yeah. And, and people have a lot of those streaming services now because that's all we do during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, it'll be available for rental uh, on all the video on demand platforms. So I, I watched it Saturday evening by myself on my laptop uh, in my home office. And, and I expected uh, to have a strong reaction because here on the podcast and just generally, we've been, we've been covering the story since the beginning of the brutal assassination and dismembering, which is a word you hate to use, but it's the accurate one, of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And I, I was not prepared for how overwhelmed I would be. Uh, I had multiple emotions by the, the time the film was over, including anger and sadness and confusion, and I was very moved by it. Um, when you when you finished it and put it together, do you as a filmmaker, are you so close to it that that you don't have that feeling? Or when you finally put it together, at least a full version of a draft, the whole two hours of it, did you and your team have a reaction to what you had produced? Um, the answer is yes. Um, in, you know, really the, the year and a half of making the film, I... I grew so close um, to Hatija Jangas, uh, Jamal's fiance, and to Omar Abdulaziz, the young Saudi dissident living in Montreal, that uh, Omar became like a brother and sister, uh, and, and Hatija uh, became like a sister to me. And, and when you're telling their stories and essentially embedding with them uh, and spending days and weeks with them in their lives, you become so emotionally invested in what they're going through um, as people. And I remember that when one of my editors showed me the scene of Hatija, Jamal's fiance, walking back into their condo that Jamal had bought for them uh, in Istanbul. And she hadn't been able to return there in the six months following his murder because technically they were not married yet. And also it had been turned into a crime scene. And my editor showed me a cut of that scene of Hatija walking into that condo. And I just started uh, bawling, I mean, just crying. And, and it brought back the memory of that day when I was filming with her as we opened the door to that condo and I saw what had become a crime scene rather than what was going to be their home. And uh, that was one of the hardest days I've, I've ever spent filming. And when I saw my editor put that together, uh, it just brought back how horrific this crime was and the emotional impact um, that it carried for, for those that loved uh, Jamal. Um, and, and certainly when I, when you see, you know, the kind of the whole film and, and I was able to, you know, to watch it now a few times in front of an audience, um, I, it, it's still, I don't, it's, it's strange thinking that, um, that we, you know, myself and my uh, team of collaborators somehow made that film and it feels kind of like an out-of-body experience. Well, that's the interesting thing, Brian, with respect to expectations for this film. I expected it to be part murder mystery, 
I expected it to be part, you know, political commentary, I guess a little bit international relations. But what I did not expect was it was going to be part love story. And so maybe let's take a step back before we get to the crime that's analyzed in the film and the horrendousness of it and the aftermath. Let's talk about who Jamal was. Could you describe him not just as a professional, but as a person? Well, the, the key to me in, um, in making uh, the film, from, from the outset, um, as the story of Jamal's murder was unfolding, uh, you know, in global news around the world, um, there was a narrative that was starting to take hold. And that was that uh, Jamal was Muslim Brotherhood, that he was an ISIS sympathizer, that he was friends of bin Laden, uh, that, you know, he hated Saudi Arabia. Um, and there was a, a further narrative coming forward that Jamal basically deserved uh uh, to be murdered. And, and you know, and even Trump in uh, some of his interviews had, uh, had hinted to the fact that, you know, Jamal basically wasn't a, wasn't a good guy. And so as I was kind of deciding uh, whether or not I was going to take this on, what became very pivotal uh, and important to me was, uh, was two things. That I understood who Jamal was uh, as a person, and that I understood who uh, Jamal was uh, from his political point of view, uh, from his writings, uh, from you know, really uh, whether or not this is this was somebody uh, that I wanted to spend the next two years of my life essentially defending. And so, in the in the early days of taking on the project, which is a whole other story of how we gained access and trust. I brought on uh, a couple Arabic speakers and I told them, I said, look, what I want you to do is I want you to scour uh, for interviews with Jamal. You know, obviously he had done a lot of stuff in English, but, you know, tons of stuff in Arabic. Find his writings, find his articles and come back to me essentially with an analysis and with a uh, with a report, you know, basically who is Jamal? And at the same time, I was reading his writings in the Washington Post, but that was really the last year of his life. And as this kind of came back over the following weeks, what, what I saw was a guy who had a, a, a great sense of spirit, um, who had a great sense of humor. You know, in the film, you see this introduction to him and he was shooting an interview and a cat jumps on his lap. And, and for a moment, you get to see his personality a guy who was educated in the United States. I mean, he, a guy who had spent his life basically traveling back and forth between the United States and Saudi Arabia, who even owned an apartment uh, in Virginia uh, because of the amount of time he was spending in the United States. Two of his children at the time of his death uh, were living uh, in the U.S. They've since returned uh, to Saudi. And as I started to read his writings, um, this was not a radical. This was not a, a terrorist sympathizer or ISIS or anything like that. Yes, he met bin Laden, but a lot of people had met bin Laden uh, in the 80s. I mean, the United States was friends with, with bin Laden before, uh, before, before the Taliban. We, we thought bin Laden was an ally. So, um, and, and his thinking changed over time, right? There was, a, there was a time, we'll get to this in due course, when he had a different view of Mohammed bin Salman, right? Well, and, and that was 
what was so kind of uh, amazing is 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 you know looking through the years of his Twitter feed and then watching his interviews and his writings that when Mohammed bin Salman you know took power uh Jamal from the beginning was very optimistic cuz here's this this young prince at the time I think MBS is you know was like 29 30 years old and he was bringing forward reform and change and promising to bring Saudi Arabia uh, into the modern era, promising to open up uh, Saudi Arabia to tourism, uh, women's rights, music, culture, entertainment. And Jamal, as a guy who had spent so much time in the West and the United States, had been advocating for that uh, for years and had been advocating for you know, a more moderate form uh, of Islam. And so Jamal was incredibly supportive of MBS. I mean, really, you know, singing his praises. And what began to change for Jamal, um, you know, was what was going on behind the scenes. So, you know, the public persona is this great reformer, this guy who you can actually see wearing a suit, uh, you know, here and there, uh, who's this young, charismatic prince. Um but behind the scenes, he's cracking down on anybody and everyone, including, you know, all of Jamal's friends who had who had a voice uh, in that country as being journalists or writers. Um, and so his opinion began to change. And that's kind of a, a story that, you know, began the, the next couple of years of his life. Why was Jamal... In the United States in the first place, there's a point, I think, in the movie where he's asked a question and he says he doesn't like to use the term living in exile. Why was he here? Well, a after MBS basically takes control, right, um, there is tremendous pressure being put on anybody who is a political thinker, a scholar, a journalist, a writer in Saudi Arabia to support MBS and when I mean support MBS, silence was not a way of support, meaning these people were being pressured to go onto Twitter, which is where everybody, you know, gets their information in Saudi Arabia or on public media or on television and, uh, you know, verbally and, uh, and in writing tell the country how much they support MBS and what a great job he's doing. And that if you don't do that, you're basically considered an outsider. So silence or not speaking uh, nothing is considered negative. So the only way to support right. MBS <laughs> is basically to be you out gotta be there. You got to be a cheerleader. You got to be a cheerleader cheer, all the time. Cheering him on. Yeah. Right? Can, can we pause on can we pause on Twitter for a moment? Sure. Because I was stunned by something. You know, we I have a very complicated relationship with Twitter <laughs> as do many people. There's some good things, there's some terrible things. It gets misused and we could do an entire show on the issue of whether or not you know, folks who thought that social media was going to be democratizing and going to give voice to people who were like Jamal, for example, you know, people who were into reform. And instead, the reverse of that has happened in a lot of places, and particularly someplace like Saudi Arabia. But the reach of Twitter, which people in America may not appreciate, you said it in passing a second ago, I think you have a stat in the movie that suggests something like two out of 10 people in the US on Twitter on a regular basis. And in Saudi Arabia, it's eight out of 10. Right. So there's there's tremendous pervasiveness of that medium. It's um, the dominant one, essentially. 
Well, and, and, and the reason for this is, and it, what's very interesting is I, I think most of us in the country uh, until four years ago kind of like thought of Twitter as like, oh, you know, you post an opinion, you it, it's not really a means of power. And what we saw with Trump was basically the entire presidency, everything that he was thinking at any moment of the day became a tweet. Uh, and it also it's, became, it's how he changed personnel sometimes. Right. right. And it also became, a, you know, a massive conduit of, of false information uh, because the platform until very recently, really largely due to Trump, uh, was not policed at all. But when you look at Twitter in in other countries, the Arab Spring happened because of Twitter. So here in the United States, you know, we, we take this idea of freedom of press, freedom of journalism, sending a tweet, right? Or sending out a tweet, um, you know, I don't like Trump. Or, you know, I, I believe all cars should be blue as basically a, a basic human right. But in authoritarian regimes, such as Saudi Arabia, that right um, is not granted. And so what all those activists all over the Middle East realized is that they could basically get onto Twitter and they could create fake accounts because you, Preet, or me, Brian, could each have 200 Twitter accounts under different names, you know, use a VPN so it's not tracked, right? And basically put out anything we want. And so the Arab Spring in 2013 basically starts as tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of activists basically take to Twitter and plan how to organize, how to meet in Tahrir Square, how to create change, how to create a revolution. And what Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis and these countries in the Gulf that had the real power and the money realized is that Twitter was a weapon that essentially people could take to Twitter and essentially overthrow a government. So Saudi Arabia developed basically, and really under MBS, a tactic of how to basically take control of Twitter, which was the public narrative in the country. And what they did, and have still done, is they hired thousands and thousands and thousands of Saudi citizens, paid them to create hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of false Twitter accounts and basically crush any form of dissent, any form of free speech, any form of criticism of MBS. And so that the Saudi Twitter feed, if you're in Saudi Arabia, your Twitter feed is just MBS rocks, MBS rules, <laughs> MBS is God, MBS is awesome, right. MBS is the best looking guy in the world, there's no greater leader of MBS. And anybody who has anything ill to say, if they don't find themselves arrested, they find that tweet essentially under 600 comments of, you know, uh, <laughs> you're an asshole, you should die. They've, they've perfected the ratio, in other words. Exactly. And that is what they were doing to Jamal Khashoggi as he puts himself into self-exile, starts opening up uh, his opinion, starts openly uh, dissenting and disagreeing with MBS. Uh, these trolls are on his Twitter, uh, not only uh, crushing his voice, but he actually begins to believe that he is an enemy of the people and that his own people hate him, even though he has 2 million Twitter followers. 
uh, and had been this, you know, such a respected voice. And you describe the approach by MBS in, in Saudi Arabia. There's a term you use to, to describe all the trolls, right? The flies? The flies. The flies. And then there's, a, what's the counterforce to the flies? You know, uh, the bees. So the bees, the bees, and, and basically <laughs> so the bees and the flies. So ex- explain just briefly, then I want to get to the to the attack. What's the job of the bees? So Omar Abdulaziz, uh, who is uh, now he's twenty eight, twenty uh, eight year old, self exiled Saudi dissident, living um, in Montreal. He basically, lo- long story short. Um, He goes to Montreal when he's 19 years old because Saudi Arabia uh, pays for the education of its youth uh, in Western countries. So if you're if you're a a Saudi and it's and it's changing now, but if you're a Saudi and you're uh, 18 years old and you want to go to school, let's say in Canada or in the United States, the Saudi government will pay for your education as long as you get in and you're of, you know, a good family under the agreement that at the end of your schooling, you're going to come back to Saudi Arabia and help build the country so that it's not reliant on oil. And so there's tens of thousands of of Saudis studying in Canada. Well, they were, not anymore, in the United States, uh, et cetera. So, So Omar goes to Montreal to study. And as he gets to Montreal, his the first home that he that he lives in is with the Jewish family because they're like, you know, exchange students. And so Omar's mind is kind of blown. All of a sudden he's living in Montreal in a Western society, which, you know, Canada is obviously, you know, a liberal, right, democracy. Uh, Montreal and the French being even probably even more liberal than than the rest of Canada. He's living in a- I believe women can drive. Right, women can drive. He's living in a Jewish home. And suddenly Omar goes, wait, um, I like Jews, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I, uh, this, this democracy thing is really cool. Um, wow, w- women have rights. Uh, people can have free speech, and Omar starts to realize that this isn't the case in his own country, and that he needs to say something about it. And he goes back to Saudi Arabia because uh, his mother's ill. And while he's there, because he had been tweeting uh, kind of, you know, anti-things against the government, the police call his father, who actually had worked for Saudi intelligence, which is the only reason why Omar, you know, was able to get out of the country, and basically says, hey, you need to bring your son into uh, to the police station tomorrow. We need to talk to him. And the father, knowing all well what this means, basically goes to Omar you're either going in there tomorrow and you're going to be silent for the rest of your life. You're going to have a travel ban on you. You aren't going anywhere or you get out of this country now. And Omar leaves. And this was eight years ago. So he he leaves Saudi Arabia. He goes back to Canada, puts himself into self-exile and starts raising his voice. And as he raises his voice, he starts gaining tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter ultimately becoming friends with Jamal. And what Omar starts to realize is that the Saudis are manipulating Twitter, that Twitter is no longer free, that basically anything Omar writes on Twitter that isn't pro-government, suddenly there's thousands of comments. Um, Those are the flies. Those are the flies. flies. And so Omar comes up with the idea 
that the way we're going to combat the Saudi flies is we are going to create our own army and we're going to call it the bees. And the bees are the good guys. And they're basically going to do the exact same thing as the Saudis are doing, except they're going to employ all of the Saudi dissidents around the world, all of the youth in Saudi, give them SIM cards to put into their phones so they can't track their location uh, or where they're tweeting from. And every time a fly sends out a tweet, the bees will attack these fake news and false narrative tweets and see to it that their opinions make its way through and start trending onto Twitter. Right, so, so that an observation or a tweet or a message from a bee doesn't get totally submerged. It can, it can survive because it's not totally overwhelmed by the ratio. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's basically fighting fire with fire. Right, <laughs> right, or fighting flies with bees. I don't know if it actually works that way. So Jamal is in the U.S. He's writing for the Washington Post. He has a pretty prominent perch. It's not a small outlet. He has a lot of fame and recognition. And so you would think a person like that has, you know, some protection, soft protection because of who he is. And as you describe, and as I've mentioned, you know, part of this film and the story of Jamal is a love story. He falls in love. You interviewed the fiance at some length. And so in connection with getting married, Jamal travels to Turkey, to Istanbul. Why does he travel to Istanbul? Well, uh, to speak on the on the the love story, you know, in in crafting the film, what became very important for me um, was I wanted audiences to fall in love with Jamal, because if you fall in love with Jamal, then you care about Jamal, and if you care about Jamal, then you want to fight for justice for him and and for the tens of thousands of Saudi political prisoners who sit in jails being tortured or without charges or beheaded uh, simply for uh, having uh, an opinion. And so what was key to that was Hatija Jengas, um, his fiance, the woman that he had decided um, that he wanted to marry. And before I speak on Hatija and why he's going into Istanbul, when Jamal fled Saudi Arabia um, and decided to move to Washington, and starts writing for the Washington Post. At the time, he wasn't thinking about getting uh, divorced. Uh, he had a wife of many, many years that he loved. They had a good relationship. And, but, you know, of course, uh, as he leaves the country in a hurry, basically believing that he's going to be arrested uh, and thrown into jail as his other friends, you know, he goes uh, without, without his wife. And months later, he's, he's in Washington, and the story that I, that I have been told that, you know, I can't verify, but, you know, I've heard this through his friends, is they basically, the, the wife um, apparently was going to come uh, visit him, and they basically intercept the wife, and I don't know the exact details. They bring her in, and they interrogate her, and they basically say, you are going to call your husband and you are going to get a divorce. You are going to demand a divorce. Because in Saudi Arabia, the only person that can grant a, a divorce is the man. It's not a mutual decision. A woman can't get a divorce unless the man says you can have a divorce, right? Even if that man is an enemy of the state. Exactly. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. So the story that I was told is that his wife basically, you know, is there with the police, with the intelligence and basically calls Jamal and says, Jamal, uh, 
you have to grant me a divorce um, because, you know, they they aren't going to let me travel. They're going to go after us. They're going to, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're going to destroy us. And, uh, and Jamal grants his wife uh, the divorce, knowing that that is the best thing for her, that, that that's the only way that she can essentially survive. And he's incredibly lonely. He's living by himself. He's in self-exile. Um, the country that he loves, he can no longer return to. And he meets Atija Jengas uh, in Istanbul at a conference that he is speaking at. And 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 at this time, this is now in May of, uh, of 2018, Jamal has really kind of started speaking all over the world uh, at conferences where he's basically going, you know, uh, don't believe what MBS is uh, is showing you, you know, uh, through his PR organizations. But what's really going on in this country is the purge of a Ritz-Carlton, is the crackdown on dissent. My friends are arrested. Uh, oh, and by the way, Trump is in his pocket. And so he's speaking uh, at a conference. Uh, this uh, conference basically hosted by the uh, Al Shark Forum, which is a, a forum that brings together uh, philosophers and journalists in, in the Middle East uh, to speak about what's going on in their country. And Hatija uh, is a writer, uh, and she had spent four years living in Oman, uh, basically writing about Oman. And she goes to interview Jamal, and Jamal and her start talking and clearly there is a spark there. And over the next several months, they start spending more and more time. Jamal starts spending more time in Istanbul and decides that he wants to marry Hatija. And the one conduit is under Turkish law. Basically, in order to be married in Turkey and to, uh, and to a Turkish woman, uh, if you've been married, you need to prove, you need to show that you are, in fact, divorced. So uh, so in order for them to be married, uh, Jamal needed to show paperwork uh, that he was divorced. Um, and to get that paperwork, he needed to go to the consulate to obtain that paperwork so that he can marry Hatisha. And that's the consulate in Istanbul. That's correct. The awful day in question, October 2nd of 2018, when he goes to try to get that paperwork. What's your understanding and what's Hatija's understanding of whether Jamal thought there was any danger to him in going into a Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul? Well, on that day, you know, there, there were two things leading up to this. So Jamal initially tries to get um, the divorce paperwork from the consulate uh, in Washington. Because he had been spending most of his time in Washington, D.C. That's where his residence was. Uh, he had friends in Istanbul, uh, had, you know, spent a lot of time in Istanbul, but he was living in Washington, right? So he goes into the consulate in, in Washington, D.C., and he actually meets uh, with Mohammed bin Salman's brother, who at the time uh, is the uh, ambassador to the United States for Saudi Arabia. And these two know each other because Jamal was in, you know, the the royal circle. He was in the inner circle, right? Uh, so, so he meets with his brother, and his brother says, you know, Jamal, I'd, I'd love to help you, but, um, you know, uh, you can't get the papers here. 
you need to get them in Istanbul, right? And, uh, but don't worry, you know, there's not going to be a problem. And so Jamal leaves this meeting with Mohammed bin Salman's brother in Washington and feeling like everything's fine. There's not going to be a big deal. So he goes to Istanbul. He I'm goes to- interrupt for a second. Was that naive? I think it was naive, but I think that, you know, Jamal had viewed himself for so long kind of part of that inner circle. I mean, he knew these people. He knew them personally, um, which is also probably one of the main reasons why they wanted to murder and silence him because, you know, uh, there was a personal connection there because he had worked for the family, the royal family. So he was viewed as a, as a bigger betrayer than the average person. Oh, by probably a multiple of of a hundred or a thousand. This this was an insider who had broke rank. This was an insider who was now basically a dissident. So it sounds like what you're saying is he had no basis, given those relationships and given his own understanding, that his actual life was in danger when he walked into the consulate on October 2nd of 2018. Well, yes and no. So he goes to that consulate a week earlier to obtain the paperwork uh, for the first time in Istanbul. Uh, And he's greeted by the consul general and everybody's really nice of him. Well, they had already been tipped off from Mohammed bin Salman's brother, from from the Washington consulate, that Jamal was going to be coming to Istanbul. And when you see the full transcript which Turkey provided uh, to me, uh, which is a whole other story of how um, I got that transcript. Uh, But in that transcript, sure enough, there's a phone call where after he enters the consulate for the first time, they call back to Riyadh and they go, what do you know? He just walked into the consulate. And so there was already, when he walked into that consulate for the first time, they told him, hey, we're happy to get you the paperwork. We don't have it ready you need to come back in, you know, in in six days uh, and get it. And they told him that basically because there was a there was a an order up on high that when Jamal comes into the consulate seeking the paperwork, you know, you let us know and don't give it to him. So they tell him to come back six days later, and in that period of time is as they put together and plan what is going to be his his murder. Um, but so he left that consulate. Now he'd been to the consulate twice. He'd been into Washington. Everyone had been nice to him, told him to go to Istanbul. He goes to Istanbul. They're nice to him again. And they say, hey, come back. It's not going to be a problem. So he leaves there thinking it's going to be okay. But when he walks into that consulate on October 2nd, 2018, clearly he is concerned because he does a few things. First of all, he has Hatija with her, and he tells her... But she doesn't come inside, correct? She's not allowed inside. She's not a Saudi citizen. Only Saudi citizens are allowed inside the Saudi consulate. So she's told that she has to wait. But he says, hey, come with me, wait, wait for me. And he leaves his phones, both of his phones, and his computer uh, with Hatija. And he also gives Satija instructions that, you know, if I'm not back in, you know, uh, in an hour, two hours, you need to call uh, Yasin Oktai, who 
uh, who's part of the uh, President Erdogan's political party. And here's the number of uh, Wada Kanthar, uh, my friend. And here's the number of Turan Kislaki. Uh, and these are the people you need to start calling. Uh, so clearly, Jamal... But that may have been a concern that he could potentially be detained, not necessarily a concern that he was going to be killed in cold blood. Oh, absolutely. I don't think he could have imagined that he was going to be murdered. I think, I think he was thinking, hey, I might be detained or they might try to rendition me. They might try back to take to Saudi Arabia. They might try to take me back to Saudi Arabia. I certainly don't think that uh, murder even even crossed his mind. So I want to talk about because I think it's important what happens when he goes into the consulate. And for some folks, this might be a little difficult to hear. Um, and you, I think, have much more detail than people are familiar with. But I want to ask you a preliminary question. There, uh, there are tapes of the encounter inside the consulate. And a transcript, which you make copious use of in the film, also available. How is it that there are such tapes? That is a, that is a, a, a great, a great question. <laughs> I, I kept, I've kept waiting for that to be explained in the film, and, and it was Well, not. I think, you know, as, as, you know, all intelligence organizations around the world never tell you how they got their intelligence, because that would be basically like, you know, a breach of intelligence. So... But one I mean, reason I ask is, one theory obviously is, and many nations do this, they, they bug the embassies of other countries for intelligence purposes. But since that is you know, somewhat well-known as a possibility in consulates and embassies throughout the world, and this I'm going to ask you this question more than once probably, what on earth were the Saudis thinking, given that there was a possibility that the Turks had eyes and, and ears potentially, at the consulate, what were they thinking in undertaking this in another country? Well, first of all, uh, to go back to the bug, right? I don't know to this day how the consulate was bugged. Uh, what I do know is that there was only one listening device, one bug in that consulate. And it was in the media room. It was in the room, which was the only room in that consulate where they could communicate securely via video, uh, video chat, uh, with Riyadh, uh, with, uh, with the kingdom. So there was a decision made that that was the room, if there was going to be a bug in there, to have, you know, a listening device. The, the second thing that, that is very interesting that, you know, was not widely covered um, in the press um, and that I found out, you know, really through the Turkish intelligence, because they didn't come forward with this, is that the Saudis had actually sent a team of basically, you know, bug experts to sweep the consulate for listening devices two days uh, before Jamal was murdered. And they didn't find this bug. So, you know, uh, it's amazing uh, that, that, that somebody's this, getting fired. Uh, that, yeah. That, that, that they didn't find this, but this was um, the only one. And you suggest that the reason, and this goes to, you know, who's responsible and how high up it goes, that they chose the media room as the room in which to murder Jamal because they might have been getting real-time direction from Riyadh as to that act. Fair? That is correct. Um, when I, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you um, two stories in, in regards to that. 
The first of which is when I was finally given the transcript, which is um, about 37 pages long, right after they murdered Jamal, there's a break in the transcript of, of a couple hours. And um, it's obvious there's a break because uh, the transcript is, is very detailed, numbered by episode, by time, by time code. Um, and uh, there's this break in the transcript. And it happens right after uh, Jamal has been murdered and they pull off his clothes um, and they are about to uh, uh, dismember him. And uh, the story that I heard, and I certainly you know, can't confirm this because I have no idea, is that after they murdered him and, and as they were dismembering him, they made a call uh, back to Riyadh. Uh, you know, arguably to show either Saad Al-Qahtani or MBS uh, that Jamal was in fact dead uh, and that they had uh, in fact dismembered him. Um, there's another part of the transcript, uh, which is very upsetting, is they're cleaning up uh, the mess after he's been dismembered. They put his body uh, into a number of basically, you know, duffel bags suitcases kind of thing. And there's a bag that has his hands in it. And uh, in the transcript, which is you see in the film, uh, that bag uh, is basically said, you know, no, you leave that for me. Fingerprints, uh, those go to Riyadh. So arguably they brought back uh, Jamal's hands uh, to Riyadh. Can I ask you two questions? One, how certain are you that MBS directed the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? And two, how certain are you that that decision came before the event? In other words, it was planned and premeditated based on all of your research. Well, I think first of all, to answer question one, whether MBS ordered the murder, you have to understand how a kingdom works, right? Which is any decision like this could only come from the king or the crown prince. And in the case of MBS, King Salman is not really ruling the country anymore. It's Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. So this operation, right, was carried out with private jets owned by Saudi Arabia with diplomatic passports. The guys on the kill team, the guy leading the operation, Mutreb, is basically Mohammed bin Salman's private security. There's photos of, of him anywhere Mohammed bin Salman travels in the background, basically, as his private security. Uh, Al-Tubaji, the, the country's forensic coroner, uh, who, you know, who provides autopsies, is part of this kill team. Al-Asari, the country's top general is part of this kill team. I mean, so how? So, so I take it the answer to my question is yes. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable that an operation at this level could be carried out without the permission of the leader. I mean, it just, it's its unfathomable, especially in a monarchy like this, and especially in the way that, that this country is governed not by people, it's governed by a single person who makes all the decisions. 
So, you know, to that extent, you know, I, I uh, you know, look, this isn't my assessment. This is the CIA's assessment. This is British intelligence assessment. This it's is not Donald Trump's assessment. This is Agnes Calamar. Well, <laughs> it's not Donald Trump's assessment. Can well, you explain yeah. that? Well, sure. Uh, can you explain how our election is invalid? And can you explain uh, <laughs> how the election was tampered with? Explain that You one. documentary filmmakers have the same technique. Answer a question with a question. Very well done. Well done, sir. <laughs> What is also so disturbing is in the transcript, you see some of the people on, as you described it, the kill team, they're laughing from time to time during this process. What was your reaction when you first saw some of these words spelled out? <sighs> you know. I mean, it made me want to punch a wall. I mean, I wanted to put my fist through a wall. It's unbelievable that human beings people, not only can you murder someone and dismember them in cold blood, that you create in your mind this idea that somebody is so much your enemy, that not only do they deserve to die, that you relish and take delight uh, in their murder uh, and their dismemberment. Uh, and clearly, I mean, just the complete cold-blooded nature of this and what is in that transcript uh, of these guys essentially laughing and playing music uh, and joking uh, joking around about cutting him up like a horse. It's maybe one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of disgusting things. I was, I was in a position to see disgusting things. And, and talking about, you know, how, you know, how, how you basically cut up, uh, you know, an animal into quarters. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's horrific. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's shocking, uh, absolutely shocking. You know what else is shocking? The botched cover-up, the amateur hour cover-up after the fact. So Jamal never leaves the consulate. His fiance is witness to the fact that he never leaves the consulate. What, what did you make based on your research and making this film of how they thought they could get away with the murder? When, you know, even putting aside unbeknownst to them, there was a bug in the room. Well, to bring you back to your, to your previous question, you had said, was there uh, a plan? Because it's been written about a lot in Saudi Arabia, basically, you know, go, oh, well, we didn't plan to kill him. He resisted. He fought. And because he fought, we had to kill him. That is not true at all. I mean, there was, the, the plan was signed, sealed, and delivered when Jamal entered that consulate that he was going to be murdered and dismembered. I mean, they had literally, uh, in the days prior, uh, sent rendition teams to figure out where they were going to put the body, uh, had scoped out different places where they could dispose of the body. They literally ordered 70 pounds of meat from a, uh, a very well-known restaurant in Istanbul. I will not say which one basically to be delivered to the consul general's home uh, because it is, as the Saudi prosecutor and police and all the examiners believe, they burned Jamal's body uh, in the tandoori oven along with his 70 pounds of meat to basically disguise the smell and also, you know, mix up any sort of evidence. And they had this tandoori oven worked on in the days prior uh, to Jamal's murder to make sure that it that it burned it over a thousand degrees, which you know would incinerate 
uh, bone in any in any human body. So so the idea that this was a you know a murder that was not planned um, is absurd. I mean, they literally the the guy came uh, out to Baji carried with him a bone saw, and what he does is you know is a coroner and knows how to cut up a body. Why would you bring fifteen people on a kill team if you weren't planning? You know, fifteen people if you were not planning uh, to basically murder this person. Now, as to the second part of the question, which is how did they not think they were going to get caught? Well, I mean, first of all, they could have never fathomed that there was a listening device in the consulate, right? And that all of that was going to be on audio. So that obviously was not part of the equation. Um, the second part of the equation is, is, is they were so stupid is they literally had a guy put on Jamal's clothes, yeah, put, I remember on, that. <laughs> put on a fake beard, exit out the back of the consulate, right? Um, and then go walk to basically where the blue mosque is, uh, walk into a public bathroom, change clothes, put on his own clothes, and then the guy is captured on surveillance cameras sitting at a cafe eating lunch. They were just so brazen. Uh, and stupid. And, and what is incredible also, though, is the Turkish investigation is what you realize is not only is every corner and street of Istanbul are there security cameras, right? That they were able to piece together all of his security camera footage from the airports, from the departures, from as they arrived in through the private terminal, as they came in and out of airport security, as they entered the consulate, as they exited, as they walked into the consul general's home, that there was enough security surveillance cameras out there of Jamal and Hatija exiting their apartment building, of them hailing a taxi, on and on and on, that the Turks were able to truly reassemble and assemble um, this crime leaving no no stone unturned. Hear more of our conversation in just a moment. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you have any sense of whether or not the Turkish folks, their job was complicated by the fact of a relationship with Saudi Arabia and how this would play out internationally? Or did they do as professional a job as they could have? This was something that was very important to me in making the film, which was 
clearly there are politics uh, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, Turkey, uh, you know, came to the rescue of, of Qatar as, you know, the Saudis basically were seeking to invade and, and annex Qatar years, years ago, which, you know, created um, that rift. But in, in this case, in this matter, right, and you just take any politics aside, the facts are the facts are the facts are the facts. The evidence is the evidence. And Turkey... But they didn't have to give it to you, and they didn't have to put it out there. No. Because they don't really have anyone to prosecute, because they're all gone, right? There was, there was a reason that I was told. What, what was very interesting to me in, in you know, all of these meetings, and I mean countless meetings uh, with the Turks, because building their trust... Um, you know, was months and ultimately, you know, a year-long process before obtaining uh, the transcript. What was interesting in me, to me is I, is I was always going, well, gee, I'm sure if they would have went to Saudi Arabia and said, hey, we've got this audio and we're about to, you know, expose you, that Saudi Arabia would have paid God knows the amount of money you know, to keep this. There are all sorts of things private. you can get from one of the richest countries in the world. Exactly. And, and they didn't do that. And what I was told, and I will not tell you by who, but it was from as credible and as a high Give us the initials. Can you give possible. us the initial can you give us the initials? Just assume it's it is it's <laughs> okay. it's bulletproof. And what and what I was told is that President Erdogan, there was absolutely no price that could be paid that was going to cover up this crime, that this was so abhorrent to the country of Turkey that you would literally kill somebody in, in a consulate in Turkey, that, that country where, you know, where they've granted you that consulate. Well, it's an affront. It's, it's not a fraud. You know, there, there, there are multiple reasons why you could be upset about this. One, is, is the human indecency of it. The other is you come into my house, you're in my kitchen, you kill someone in my house. Right. And here was the, the real nail in the coffin. You were going to frame the murder on Turkey. Right. They right. were, the, the whole plan was to blame Turkey for the murder and go, hey, you know, Turkey has journalists imprisoned and we don't know what happened to Jamal, but hey, he was in Turkey and he vanished. It's Turkey's fault. And, and when Turkey understood that the plan was basically to frame Turkey for the murder, there was no price that was going to be paid uh, for Saudi Arabia to get out of this. Yeah, it seems like a lot of, a lot of miscalculations and, and, a, and a lot of, you know, separate and apart from the outrageousness of it and the brutality of it and the inhumanity of it, there were a lot of clown-like moves and sort of hard to understand. Can I ask you this? So you come off an Oscar win from your film Icarus and you decide this is your next project and it has deep interest, not just in America, but around the world. It was a huge news story, has a lot of political implications. I would imagine there were many, many, many outlets who were banging down your door to be the distributor for this film, correct? <laughs> that, was, that was quite a way to set that set up that question <laughs> well you know that's what one might think but that's not the world we live in so i mean kidding aside 
You're a tremendously successful director. You have an amazing team. You just won the damn Oscar. This story is more sensational, of more uh, widespread interest. So explain to the folks why almost nobody was willing to distribute this film. This was a incredible wake-up call to the world that we live in. And also a wake-up call to not only the Saudi influence and power uh, and money uh, that, that, that they wield uh, and ultimately control, uh, but also a wake-up call to the fear and cowardice among these mega corporations and media companies and streamers uh, that basically seek you know, profit, uh, their business, business interests, and subscriber growth you know, far ahead of human rights. And so, you know, so here I go to take on this film and I, I do it really as an activist. Um, the Human Rights Foundation, Thor Halverson, comes on board to fund the film. And they fund the film all through charitable donations through their foundation uh, because it meets their mandate of basically exposing and protecting uh, human rights abuses. And we embark to go make this film, and we get it in t uh, ready in time for Sundance Film Festival last year, which is you know arguably the most prestigious and well-regarded uh, film festival in North America, second to maybe only Cannes uh, in the world. We premiere it there. Hillary Clinton is at my uh, premiere. Uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, is at my premiere. Uh, Alec Baldwin, others. And we literally are greeted by a rapturous standing ovation. Hatija and Agnes Calamar, the UN Special Repertoire, are with me. Hatija, as she takes the stage uh, after the premiere at Sundance, I'm watching as, as hundreds of people in the audience are wiping tears uh, from, from their eyes. And the following day, we're met with the most rapturous, incredible reviews that I've ever read. I, I was just so overwhelmed by it. I mean, we, uh, the review and the Variety and the Hollywood Reporter were just was a love letter to the film, but really a love letter to Jamal and and such a validation for this, you know, really emotional, uh, gut wrenching journey me and my team had been on. But it reminded me why I had made the film. I had made the film for Tisha. I made the film for Jamal. I made the film for Lujan Al-Hatul, who is the Saudi woman's human rights activist who was sentenced last week to six years in jail on top of the three that she's already served. And her crime as a 31-year-old woman is basically saying publicly that women in that country should be able to leave their home without the permission of an 18-year-old male that women in that country should be able to drive, that women in that country should be able to wear what they want. And for that, she sits in a jail for nine years now, three, three years and another six years of sentencing. So I made the film for these people and then to have these accolades and then believe that one of these big global media companies, these big streamers, distributors, were going to acquire the film and because it was a human rights foundation, we didn't care how much they paid. We would have given it away for free. And not a single one of these companies, not one, stepped to, up to acquire and distribute. And the reason? 
Well, I think it's the the same reason why uh, why we're still selling weapons to the Saudis, uh, why the Russo brothers, um, you know, the directors of the Avenger films, just took fifty million dollars from Saudi Arabia, uh, why Live Nation and AMC theaters have hundreds of millions of dollars of Saudi money into them. Why Penske Media has taken hundreds of millions from the Saudi, why Uber and the vast majority of American tech companies have Saudi money in them. Um, you Nobody know, wants to make Mohammed bin Salman upset. That, and I think greed and cowardice and putting business interests and subscriber growth ahead of humanity, ahead of human rights, ahead of good and allowing evil to prevail as long as there's money behind it. And you can see the same thing out of, out of China. It's a version of the flies on a broader, as, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking on a broader, more international scale in which not just, not just individual dissidents are being silenced by overwhelming their voices through all these bots like you, like you described, but you know, powerful, independent, iconic American companies, right? Who operate under the flag of freedom uh, and the first amendment, right? The only, the only business mentioned in the constitution is the press. And yet in your view, they are cowed by Saudi Arabia and the promise of, of money. You know, and, and in particular, I thought it was interesting. The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos, I believe, as of today. 200 billion. He owns the Washington Post and he's in the film. And he's presented as someone who was a supporter of and sympathetic to the plight of Jamal. He also, he also is the biggest investor and the head of Amazon, which has a streaming service. Were you surprised that even Amazon didn't bite? Um, Jamal worked for the Washington Post. He was Jeff Bezos's employee. Jeff Bezos came to Istanbul and he stood on a stage with Hatija Jengas, Jamal Khashoggi's fiance, at the one-year anniversary of Jamal's murder. And he said to Hatija in her eyes, And you need to know that you are in our hearts. We are here, and you are not alone. And then he embraced and hugged Tatisha, which was against uh, her, you know, Islamic upbringing, and that caused her great, you know, problems in the press. But she hugged and embraced him. And in that moment, we believed that we had a friend in Jeff Bezos. I mean, he flew to Istanbul for Jamal's memorial and stood on a stage and hugged Jamal's fiance and told her that she was not alone. But clearly she was alone. And how do you feel about the Amazon decision in particular, given that connection? It's the same answer that I have to everything else, you know, money, business, greed, power. And when is it ever enough? When, it, when is it ever enough? I mean, in, in the last months, Amazon announced that they were acquiring Souk, which is the Amazon of Saudi Arabia. And there's all sorts of deals back on the table. And so you have to ask yourself at a certain point, 
When is it enough? When do you have enough that you actually say, you know what? It's not acceptable to murder my employee in a consulate, dismember him, burn his body among 70 pounds of meat. I'm not going to do business with you. There is no amount of money that you can pay me. And it's disheartening that the people in power that have the ability for the world to see content like this, that have the ability uh, to stand up to injustices like this because of their wealth and power, choose not to. Well, there's a complicating dimension to the Jeff Bezos part. And by the way, we will now be accompanied by my son who has delayed his piano lesson and his mother is not allowing it to be delayed any further. There's a complicating factor with Jeff Bezos, right? Who had a, a direct relationship with MBS and there was the business of, of his marriage and direct texting and the infiltration of his device, presumably by Saudi Arabia. So I, I don't know if that had any effect on any of this or if you have any comment on that. Well, uh, Jeff Bezos was hacked uh, by Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I've seen reports, I've seen documents, I've seen the data streams. I mean, he was... And he was hacked by Mohammed bin Salman before the Khashoggi murder. Uh, when Mohammed bin Salman came to the United States uh, in 2018, if you remember, he had these meetings with everybody from Obama to Bezos to Bill Gates to Elon Musk, and he paraded around the United States meeting you know, all the, all the rich and powerful. Um, he got Jeff Bezos's phone number, and they started messaging each other. And they were messaging over uh, a multi-billion dollar cloud server deal uh, that they were going to announce. Well, one of the messages that Mohammed bin Salman sent to Jeff Bezos was a video message of like a soccer match. And this video message, as, uh, as forensically examined through, you know, really, really reputable, big cybersecurity guys, showed that when Bezos basically clicked on this video message, all of a sudden hundreds of megabytes, gigabytes of data started streaming out of his phone and was connecting to a server uh, known uh, to be Saudi. And this happened over months and months. So what MBS appeared to be doing was just gaining information on Bezos, getting intelligence on Amazon, intelligence on their deal, basically how to leverage whatever it was. And then in the fallout of the Khashoggi murder, as you know, Jamal wrote for the Washington Post, and what Mohammed bin Salman couldn't fathom, and I think Trump can't fathom this either, is the idea of a free press, right? Is that just because you own the newspaper, right? You can be, what is it, the Solenberger family or whatever that, that has the Salz that owns the New York Times, right? Yeah, Salzburgers, uh, right. Salt, you know, or just because you're Jeff Bezos and you own the Washington Post, that doesn't mean you control what the New York Times writes about, nor do you control what the Washington Post writes about. And so the fact that the Washington Post was, you know, basically bringing this Khashoggi murder front and center to the world and wouldn't let it go and kept pursuing it, right? And that in Khashoggi's death, He's not a Saudi journalist. He's a Washington Post journalist. In Mohammed bin Salman's mind, Jeff Bezos could have stopped that. He could have said to the Washington Post, hey, 
you know, go easy on MBS, stop writing about Khashoggi. And that didn't happen. And so uh, they tried to blackmail Bezos and expose his affair to Lauren Sanchez. Do you think there will be any accountability for any of these people after Biden takes office? I think that uh, Biden has said, and we're going to find out, uh, that one of his you know, mandates is that as he takes office, he wants to reexamine the U.S.-Saudi relations. He's tweeted out things such as justice for Jamal on the second anniversary of Jamal's murder. You know, he sent out his condolences again, uh, saying justice for Jamal, again saying that if elected president, he plans to do something. And the one thing that I do know, or at least believe, is there is bipartisan support. Um, In the film, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making a Trump hit piece. And so uh, I allowed Trump to just purely speak for himself without any spin on it, without any you know, political conjecture of right and wrong. And those that admonish Trump in the film are Bob Corker, Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham. Uh, it's his constituents. And, and, and the reason why I wanted to see to it that, that it that it was his constituents saying that this was wrong rather than, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff or, or, or the usual, you know, uh, Democrats is because I wanted to show that there was true bipartisan support. And both in the House of Representatives and the Senate, there was almost unanimous support to basically block weapon sales to Saudi Arabia uh, and impose sanctions for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and Trump vetoed uh, both of those actions. So I believe that Biden, regardless of who wins uh, the upcoming Senate race here, is going to have support uh, in both the House and the Senate uh, for reexamining the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Let's just point out to folks that we're recording this on Tuesday, January 5th. We don't know the results of the Georgia runoffs yet. Have you ever had, or do you have now, any fear for your own safety because of your involvement in this project? I don't. Is is that because you're a privileged American and you think that nothing can happen to you? No. It's because if I live in fear, then you stop, I think, living a, a, a life to its fullest potential and one where you do things based on right or wrong or uh, from a point of activism or human rights, because then you're factoring in uh, decisions uh, or you're factoring in risk. And I think that, that, you know, that's the same reason why we didn't land a big global distributor is because all of their decision-making is factoring in risk. When I'm making a film like this, I'm not putting that into the equation. What I am putting into the equation is what has it been like to be Hatisha Jengas, Jamal's fiance? And if I don't do this, who's going to do this? What, what is it like to be Omar Abdulaziz and be living in self-exile while his two younger brothers, 19 and 21 years old, sit in a jail in Saudi Arabia for two years without charges? What's it like to be Lujan Hatul or Osama Zamo, Jamal's friend, the economist, who had the audacity to tweet that he didn't agree with MBS's uh, economic policies for the country? What's it like to be these people? And what can I do as a human on this planet in my short time that I have on, on this in this world uh, to maybe affect change or have an impact? 
And that's kind of how I approach things. And if I start thinking about, oh, what might happen to me, uh, then, then I stop telling stories like this. And I'd rather tell stories like this than worry about consequences or not even that. Worry about things that, that haven't happened, nor do I believe they will happen, because I still believe in our democracy. I still believe that we do have safety in America and that we are safe here. And, uh, and I hope that I'm right. Brian Fogel, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. People should watch The Dissident. It'll be available on video on demand platforms everywhere starting Friday, January 8th. My conversation with Brian Fogel continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So let me end the show this week with a confession. I'm very tired. and maybe, maybe some of you are very tired also. And I was going to talk about some incident from a few weeks ago, but then the events of yesterday, and by yesterday, I mean Tuesday, January 5th. I'm recording this on the morning of January 6th, Wednesday, and I was up very late watching election returns in Georgia. And I will tell you that I was pretty surprised, in part because I don't like to get my hopes up, and in part because I consult with lots of very smart people in politics, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And notwithstanding what some people were saying optimistically in public and on TV, which is what you do in politics, the predictions were all maybe one seat, definitely not two seats. The Republicans will retain the Senate. That was the prediction of everyone I spoke to. Those were private conversations with people who are in the business. And that only seemed common sense. Both of the Republican senators back on November 3rd outperformed their Democratic counterparts. There was an argument that the people of Georgia might want to split their vote. They might want split government, Democratic president, and some ability to counteract a Democratic president's conduct by having a Republican Senate. And maybe all of those arguments and predictions might have been correct, but for recent shenanigans that we've been talking about and that Ann Milgram and I have been talking about in Georgia, which may have suppressed the vote on the part of Republicans who were told over and over and over again, it's a rigged election. Why go out and vote? It's too early to know. And I should also note that while Reverend Warnock has been declared the winner, John Ossoff seems like he has won. But as of the time I'm recording this, in my tiredness, he has not been declared the winner, but it's expected. So I'm going to assume for the sake of this program and enjoying my day that both Ossoff and Warnock have won and that my former boss, Senator Chuck Schumer, will be the next majority leader of the United States Senate. And while the final votes are still being counted, I think it's not too early to note how historic these races are and symbolic and important. The Reverend, who is a pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was once a co-pastor, will be the first, the first black senator ever elected from Georgia. John Ossoff, who was a guest on Stay Tuned a few weeks ago, is a 33-year-old Jewish man. He will be the youngest senator in decades since President-elect Joe Biden was elected back in 1973. And both candidates ran tough and inspiring campaigns, even as their Republican opponents smeared them with racist and anti-Semitic ads that positioned the two candidates as dangerous radicals. Like the time that John Ossoff's opponent, David Perdue, who, by the way, refused to debate more than once John Ossoff, who ran an ad against him in which Ossoff's nose was enlarged, an age-old anti-Semitic stereotype. 
The credit goes to a lot of people. Organizers in the state have long been fighting to flip the state of Georgia, and black voters especially showed up in full force, thanks to organizers like Stacey Abrams, who today, according to a lot of people, walks on water, and the folks at Fair Fight, who have been working to register voters in the state for a long time now. According to the Washington Post, quote, in Fulton County, the state's most populous county and where a substantial share of voters are black, more in-person voters showed up on Tuesday, yesterday, than on election day in November, end quote. This is for a runoff election. That doesn't happen. If you stayed up late enough, you got to see remarks made by Reverend Warnock, who had some troubles with his live stream, as I noted. He said, referring to his mother, quote, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. The improbable journey that led me to this place and this historic moment in America could only happen here, end quote. Here's something else that connects the somewhat uphill and historic victories for Ossoff and Warnock. They're linked by the late Congressman John Lewis, who we lost recently, a man who dedicated his life to representing the people of Georgia and fighting for every person's right to vote. He was all about the right to vote. And Lewis, it turns out, was a guiding force to both of these candidates. John Ossoff, as an even younger person, was an intern for John Lewis when he was just starting out and remained connected to him until his death. And Warnock was Lewis's pastor at the church they both attended. The Reverend spoke at Lewis's funeral this past July. When I had John Ossoff on Stay Tuned a few weeks ago, I was inspired by his will to fight for the people of Georgia. And that is exactly what both of them will do. And by dint of their victories, the Senate will be able to do its work as well and help Joe Biden fix a lot of things that are problematic in this country. It'll be easier to get confirmations. It'll be easier to get changes in climate policy. It'll be easier to deal with COVID relief. So many things that could have been obstructed by the current majority leader, Mitch McConnell, should be able to happen. So congratulations to Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. Thank you to John Lewis and Stacey Abrams. And thank you to all the voters in Georgia who showed up against all odds. These will be close races, just like the presidential race last November was close. And it just shows us that old saying remains true. Every vote really does matter. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Brian Fogel. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-247-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.